0: Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders. Police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes. Amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you the highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words, and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is COPPA. If you had the privilege to work the streets alongside Steve Gunderson, you likely found that he was the smartest, most logical, reasonable, and commonsensical partners you ever enjoyed. Intelligence meets courage. That was developed after having spent 33 years as an investigator working some of the most high profile crime events in our history. Gundo began his law enforcement career in the mid 1970s as a Missoula, Montana County Sheriff's Department deputy, rising from jailer to patrolman from a property crime detective to narcotics and later becoming a detective sergeant. He remembers with fondness his first partner.
1: One of the training officers that I had who was one of the first ones, usually you get in a car and they say, don't touch anything, don't say anything unless I ask you something. And that's usually the way it was. And then eventually I ran into this guy named Al Kimmery, and the sergeant gave me to him one day as a training officer. And we walked out into the parking lot, and he threw the keys over top of the car to me, and I caught him. And I'm going like, what do you want me to do? And he goes, you're going to drive. And that was the first day I met somebody that, like, treated me, you know, halfway. Like, hey, we're going to teach you how to do the job. And so Al was turned out to be a really good friend. He's about eight years older than me. And strangely enough, he and I had gone all the way to Seattle, Washington for a street survival school that the department sent us to a year earlier. And one of the big uh, talking points was complacency kills. You get complacent. and But we're all humans and it all happens. Because life is going on and you do your job. And sometimes you're distracted. In 1984, December 6th, he had put on some weight, and he was a very uh, s- street survival type cop, always thought about keeping safe and everything. and But he had put on weight, and he uh, had not bought a new ballistic vest to wear underneath his uniform, and, and he, he quit using, quit wearing his vest, and which is kind of crazy for Al. And his wife... <laughs> Told me after his death that he had had a premonition something was going to happen, and he wrote down all his firearms, and all of his artwork. He did some artwork, and he put prices on him. And the night before he was killed, he told her that I just think something bad's going to happen. He had, was dispatched to a, a gas runoff, and that's where somebody goes to a gas station, probably a convenience store, which we used to call stop and robs, and they put the gas in at the self-serve pump and then drive off without paying. Majority of the times it's a mistake, they just forgot their minds are going, you know. And the police officer, if they find them, they said, Hey, you got to go back and pay. Well, this night was about two o'clock in the morning, and he runs across this car description and gets behind it and runs the plate, and that's the plate given to the dispatch. So he runs it in CIC, but he throws his top lights on and pulls the car over without getting the National Crime Information Commuter information back on the plate, which would have told him it was a stolen car. And that was kind of like another no-no, that you, you can't figure out why somebody like of Al's capabilities and thought patterns would do. But anyway, he got out of the car, he walked up to the window to get the guy's driver's license and tell him about him forgetting to pay for his gas. And what Al didn't know is this guy had burglarized a house up in Great Falls and had stolen a Charter Arms 44 Special revolver. And he just put the barrel on the side of the window when Al walked up, he shot Al right through the heart. As Al kind of stumbled backwards trying to get back to the patrol guard, the guy hit the gas in the stolen car. And Al was able to pull out his service uh, revolver, which was a forty four Special also. And he put like four or five rounds through the car through the trunk and through the back window, and luckily a fragment of a bullet went through the headrest on the driver's side and nicked the suspect in the neck and actually gave him a minor wound with some blood. And of course the car, the windows were shot out of it, so he it was wintertime. He couldn't get out of town and, and get away with it, so he ditched the car and he was walking around and he was inside a convenience store just trying to stay warm uh, when some city police officers uh, pulled up and saw a guy in the back of the store that matched the description and they arrested him. I believe in partnerships uh, working in law enforcement. I, I always did that. Uh, there would be sheriff's deputies, even in uniform patrol, that you kind of had a, a relationship with. And many times you, if your beats were next to each other, you'd work together on things. Uh, when I got into investigations, I liked to work with partners. And through the years, I found that <clears throat> whether it was uh, another ATF agent or a sheriff's deputy that I had rapport with. And lots of times, uh, your partner would have strengths that you didn't have, and that's what I kind of realized. And over the years, I've been very successful with partners because uh, bouncing ideas off of another person is very important.
0: Gundo later became an ATF agent, devoting a large portion of his career to investigating violent crime suspects involved in the white supremacist movement.
1: I had to work security for a David Duke speech when I was at the Sheriff's Department. They brought our SWAT team in, in in soft clothes and we surrounded David Duke so no violent acts would take place with him and this was like 79 or 80 and I thought a Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard is going to go to the University of Montana ballroom which back in those days Missoula was a liberal bastion almost like uh, Eugene, Oregon and, and uh, Boulder, Colorado and you know places like that and I sat up in the front row with a couple other officers to protect him from anybody coming up from the crowd and he started talking and the whole, there were probably 200 people in this room. They all got up and started clapping. And that's was my first inkling that there was something going on in this country that I knew nothing about these, these far what right separatist views. I've been recruited by KKK. Uh, I was buying a shotgun from a KKK, uh, Clavering leader out of Alabama, and he said, You know, you ought to think about joining us. You could be a leader in no time. And it, he, he based it solely on my blue eyes and my light colored skin and hair. I had been assigned to Spokane, Washington, which is in the eastern part of the state. And my training officer for ATF was a agent named Herb Byerly. And Herb had been in Spokane since '68. He'd been an ATF agent in Alabama for just a couple of years and he transferred out to the Northwest and Herb was a a great a great investigator and a great training officer and within a year of being out of the Academy Herb had started on a case trying to infiltrate the Aryan Nations which was located in North Idaho outside of Coeur d'Alene run by Richard Butler and prior to my coming on to ATF I was quite aware of some of the earlier terrorist cells that emanated out of the Aryan Nation. Aryan Nation was really just like a gathering point where people of like minds would get together and they'd come out of that and, and actual cells would come out. Start out with the Order with Robert Matthews. They murdered the radio talk show host in Denver, Alan Berg, I think his name was. And in the end, they did some robberies. Matthews, they The FBI cornered him up in the far northwest part of Washington State on the Pacific at Whitby Island, and they surrounded him, and he didn't give up, and they used tear gas, and they burnt the place down and and killed him, and that was the end of that. But they also, the Order Two came out of that. Another cell that came out of Aryan Nations was the Phineas Priesthood, was particularly much more active than some of the other two orders were. They went around and did a lot of bank jobs on the I-5 corridor. They did bombings. They used uh, distraction bombs to distract from their real target. They did that in Spokane. And they did some political bombings. They bombed the Planned Parenthood office in Spokane, Washington. They bombed the Spokesman Review newspaper because they felt that it was part of the Zionist occupying government. One time when we were doing some investigations where they robbed a bank in Spokane and they did this uh, distraction bombing, I told the Spokane police and sheriff's investigators we were standing there, I said, this was after the film Heat came out. And I said, you know what? I think these guys have watched the film Heat because that's exactly what they did in that film. They used those distraction bombings. But they were pretty pretty hardcore. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is all these clicks that came out, we had uh, worked with the FBI on all of those. And that would sometimes be rocky because every time you, you have two federal agencies working, you have their bosses. And as the line of progression goes up to their headquarters, sometimes the egos, egos get bigger and bigger. And so there was always bumps in the road and a difference by the street agents in the way they did their job. One incident was on the order too, they, they had planned to go and bomb a, make a statement bombing in Seattle of a gay nightclub. When we figured out who was who in the zoo and we started doing search warrants, ATF agents and FBI agents would go together. And I was on a team with another ATF agent out of Spokane and we with a couple of FBI agents we had never met or worked with before. They were out, of, they weren't from Idaho or eastern Washington. And we went at the middle of the night, did the search warrant on this older man who was involved in the Order 2. But he was kind of the the shot caller. And we went, grabbed him up, and did a search warrant on his house. And it was uh, in the mountains, very rural. And during the course of the search, we found uh, a box in the garage that was full of pipe bombs. And I was the one who found it. I got up on a ladder and I was searching these shelves in the storage room and I said, "Uh, fellas, we got us a problem. So the other ATF agent fully knew the situation. But we told the the two FBI agents there, said, look, we're going to have to call the bomb squad and the nearest bomb squad is going to be Spokane, Washington. And this is the middle of the night. Those guys are not going to be here until tomorrow, probably late morning, to render these improvised explosive devices safe. And the FBI just looked at us and said, well, we can't wait. And I go, well, you're going to have to because you don't know what's going on with those. We, we, you know, we can't move them, let alone do anything else. And he goes, well, that's fine. We're, we're going to take them now. And so I looked at the other ATF agent and I looked at them and I said, look, all I ask you guys to give, do us a favor, okay? Because our cars were parked way down the road, you know, maybe 500 yards when we snuck in to do the knock and talk and then arrest the guy and the patrol had already left with the guy in custody and I said give us time to go down and get in our government car and give us time to get down the road a little bit okay and they looked at me kind of perplexed and they said okay I said okay we'll see you later because I wasn't going to be around there and neither was the other ATF agent when they started grabbing that box full of pipe bombs
0: Gundo and his partner, Herb Byerly, conducted an investigation of Randy Weaver for illegal firearms possession that led to the 1992 siege between Weaver and U.S. government agents at Ruby Ridge, Idaho, and drawing international attention.
1: When Randy Weaver refused to become an informant for the ATF, federal prosecutors turned up the heat presenting the case to a grand jury in 1991. After the grand jury indicted Randy Weaver on these federal firearm charges, it was the ATF's task to go arrest this man. They knew from their own investigative work that it wasn't just Randy Weaver, that he had his son up there uh, carrying a firearm. Randy Weaver's wife and potentially a friend uh, were all
2: heavily armed. And what law enforcement in general does in all those situations is to attempt to arrest the
1: individual away from their residence.
2: My parents were on their way to town in winter, and they had left you know, us kids up on the mountain as they would, you know, when they go to town for supplies. The agents set up on the side of the road as a stranded vehicle that Randy and Vicki Weaver coming by would stop and ask if they needed help. My dad was arrested, and they took him to jail.
1: As he was being taken to jail, he said, "Well, you tricked me this time, but you won't trick me again." And, in fact, that was obviously a a clear signal to what would come next. 86, 87 had an old friend who was an informant, who was not a criminal, who did it out of altruistic reasons, and he started using him to try and get into the Aryan Nations, and his informant Ken actually got inside the Aryan Nations, became accepted, and as as we all as we talked about earlier, the whole thing was keep your eye open for these little clicks to get started at the Area Nations and then they start hanging out together off the compound grounds and that's when that's when the trouble starts. You know, we had history, history, history of it. So Ken was doing that and of this group that he started seeing forming together about two or three guys was Randy Weaver and Randy Weaver was a military veteran, he was army, he was a ex-Green Beret and had got married uh, back in Iowa I believe and they ended up moving out to Idaho and what I didn't realize at that time even until the end of the case was that the situation of the white white separatist but also Christian identity religion and when you start involving any kind of religion theology along with white supremacists or anything like that, you know you've got people that are probably gonna be more committed than the normal normal person. And they actually were. And my underestimation of that is that after Ken was able to buy some sawed off shotguns, quite a bit of hubbub when he showed up at the Aryan Nations one day after buying the shotguns and he was confronted by the security chief working for Butler at the compound and started interrogating him on his identity and and making points about how his license plates on his car doesn't match with the name that he's given and all this and that. And Ken didn't have the right answers for all their questions and they told him to leave and so he was burned. And that's when I, Herb was kind of Trying to figure out what to do, and he asked me one day my opinion, and I said, "Well, you know, Ken's not getting back in there. You've got these buys on Randy. If, if it were me, I'd go up there and try and roll him as an informant, and keep going with what you initially planned to keep somebody with eyes eyes on the ground in the compound." So through the course of that, we Herb and I decided to go get a Forest Service pickup truck from Coeur d'Alene Forest Service and that give us a little bit of a undercover identity for when we're going around driving on these mountain roads because we're going up to Weaver's Cabin and some of these other places that there's nobody else driving around and we need to have some kind of excuse on who we are and what we're doing there. And at one point we were we were really on the hunt for Randy because we wanted to try and see if we could flip him. We went up to the cabin up on top of that mountain on Ruby Ridge and as we pulled the truck into the dr- little turnaround there in front of the cabin two kids came walking out. Later I would know that they was the older, oldest daughter Sarah and her little brother Sammy. And Sarah was in a red and white dress but she had heavy boots on and strapped around her waist was a World War II era Holster and pistol, uh, German. I could see that when they walked up to the truck. Sammy had his hair shaved, kind of like a skinhead, which it left me with the idea with the people we're dealing with that was a skinhead cut. And he had uh, a sheathed knife with a swastika on it, and a, and it looked like a, a swastika on the, the handle of the knife, a dagger. And when they came up to the truck, they wanted they. They were frowning. They weren't like acting like kids of their age. And they were interrogating us, like, what do you want? What are you doing here? And I said, hey, we're just up here looking for so-and-so drainage. We're with the Forest Service. And they go, we can't help you. And they just stood there, indicating they wanted us to leave. And as Herb pulled the truck out and drove away, I looked at Herb, and I said, oh, boy. This is stranger than I thought. We Then, later that day, we caught Randy and Vicky, his wife, at some cabins down in Naples, just down at the bottom of the mountain. And we rolled up, and they were outside, and Herb had Randy come over, and Vicky kind of stood about five feet back, but she was listening to the conversation. And uh, Herb turned it over to me, and I always, in my job, tried to treat people the way I'd want to be treated if I was in their shoes, so I, always, I didn't try and BS people. I tried to tell him, hey, this is where you're at, this is what you're looking at, and maybe we can give you an alternative. And I did all that. I told him that Herb had some federal firearms cases on him. He might get, in reality, get 18 months, couple of years. I said, you might even be able to do prison right in Spokane because at that time they had a small federal correctional facility in Spokane. And I said, your, your wife would be able, the kids would be able to come visit you um you could take it to trial, who knows, you might get acquitted and you might walk away. But those two alternatives aren't all that great. Whereas if you decide to work with us and continue going to the Aryan Nations and continue your involvement with your friends that you kind of got close with, his little clique of guys, and just report to back report back to us what's going on, be truthful. I mean, you don't even have to make a case as long as you stay in there and, and you are eyes and ears inside. And he promptly said no. He said he didn't even take time to think about it. Now, Vicki didn't say anything that day, but after everything went down later, I realized that she was more committed or as committed as he was. And there were times when after we had arrested Randy, ATF arrested him first without incident, and he went to the magistrate, and the magistrate gave him some wrong information about losing his property and things such as that, which was the wrong information, which has made him more paranoid, but he released him on bond. And I think that there were times when he probably would have turned himself in during that fugitive status when she told him not to, which led to the the violent confrontation that happened with the marshals. And then with the FBI, we did the best job we could do. They were headed, Randy and some of his associates were headed to more criminal activity. And I'm not so sure that they weren't involved in some criminal activity that's never been uncovered to this day. And we did the right thing. And when we arrested him, we did it right and no one got hurt.
0: Like Weaver, the Aryan movement spawned several modern-day historical crime figures like Timothy McVeigh, who bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City, and the Keogh brothers, whose white power ideologies led to serial
1: murder. The Keoghs came out of Aryan nations too. I mean, in retrospect, when you look at Kirby and Gloria Keogh, they were very similar to Randy and Vicky in that Kirby was a Vietnam era, veteran I think of the navy and got out he had real white extremist views they were both he Kirby and his wife were both Christian identity same they moved from the southeast out to the northwest which you know that's what Butler had always said the northwest is going to be home for the whites you know that was the whole story through all those years so they got out there And she, they had a whole bunch of kids, and I think they were all boys. I think they were maybe five to eight boys. And the two of the older ones were Shane and Chevy. Chevy being the oldest, Shane being his little brother. And they were raised and indoctrinated in that, that same way as little Sammy was in the Weavers. The other interesting thing is that prior to the Oklahoma City bombing, and I had never heard of Alhamb City before, but Alhamb City, Oklahoma, is a Christian identity compound that existed down there. Uh, I think it was polygamous, and all they were almost like they were becoming almost like the Aryan Nation. They were they were creating a place a meeting place for these extremists, skinheads, white separatists, militias, all of them. And during the course of this, there was talk at Aloham City in like 93, in that area, where they would talk about ways to fund their extremist activities. And they talked about ripping off federal firearms licensees, gun dealers. And Timothy McVeigh was in some of these meetings. And Keos were in some of these meetings. So that McVeigh, prior to the Oklahoma City bombing, he did rip off a gun dealer. And I know that Timothy McVeigh was, out, was at Waco, and as the investigation of the Keogh clan started, we found out that there were allegations that McVeigh, before the Oklahoma City bombing, had come up to check out places where Matthews had lived in North Idaho and over at Whitby Island. He was interested in where Randy Weaver lived. He was looking for that historical motivation uh, on his track. That he was going. The Keos, Kirby and his son Chevy went down to Arkansas and they had been familiar through the gun show circuit of a guy named William Mueller. He was had quite a collection of firearms and they went down and they did a home invasion of his house in Arkansas and they ripped him off but they didn't harm Mueller, his wife, or his little daughter. And they took the firearms back up to the Northwest and started selling them in gun shows. And so many of those firearms were recorded and so they could be put into NCIC, National Crime Computer, and they came back as hits. And that's how we got involved up in Washington is the guns were back in the Northwest. And so we started working on the case along with the Little Rock ATF office, which is jurisdiction of where the ripoff of Mueller had occurred. And then during the course of this initial part of the Keo case, Mueller, his wife and his daughter, turned up missing. What we didn't realize at that point is that Chevy, in the help of one of his skinhead buddies, Daniel Lee, had gone back down and done another home invasion of the Muellers, this time ripping off more firearms. They were under the impression that Mueller was in possession of some gold also, which was not the case. But they thought he he had gold hidden at his house and during the course of that incident, they were torturing even the little girl, trying to get people to fess up where this gold was, and there just was none. They ended up suffocating the three family members, and they threw them in a bayou uh, outside of Tilly, Arkansas, uh, on a bridge over over a bayou. And for months during the initial investigation, we just, we knew that it was probably not a good sign that they were missing, but we just didn't know them. And then finally, a fisherman was out fishing in the bayou and he brought up a line that had a tennis shoe with an ankle and a foot in it, and that's what led to the recovery of the bodies.
2: It was just after 1.30 when the officer pulled over the blue Chevy Suburban with Washington State plates for a traffic violation. Neither man in the vehicle could produce ID, so the officer asked the driver to step out of the car. The man told the officer he borrowed the truck from a friend. He then refused to a pat down search. Listen as the officer attempts to search the man for weapons. Like, any no, guns, no. knives, clubs, hey, stuff I like that on you, sir? I don't want you going and searching through all my I'm not searching through your stuff, sir. No, I'm going to put you in my car. No, fine. But I now, don't do you have any guns, them. knives, no, clubs, and stuff like that no. on you? Very good. But listen, sir, I don't want no problems. I'm okay. not going to give you any problems, sir. Apparently, he did want car. problems. A few more minutes went by. Then, the man ran back to his car in an attempt to get away. The passenger then opened fire on the police. Gun, 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 gun oh, oh please oh. as the passenger ran into the woods the driver sped away amazingly no one was injured in this exchange a few minutes later the driver pulled into a parking lot and when a Wilmington officer approached him the gunfight continued more than 30 rounds were fired here one bullet striking a passerby in the shoulder. The nationwide search for the two men continues. Police believe the two are from Spokane, Washington, with ties to a white supremacist group. What they were doing in Clinton County, Ohio, may have something to do with an Aryan Nations march at the statehouse on Sunday.
1: At one point in the investigation, I was getting the handgun that Shane Keogh used in the first shootout in uh, Frankfort, Ohio. And... We, we met him up in Montana in the Yak Valley and negotiated for him to release that handgun to us as evidence, and I jumped in the truck with him, and he gave me the gun, and then he said, you know, you should, you should join us. And I'm, well, I don't know what it is, but I guess it's primarily about my looks, which is such a superficial thing and to think that my ideology would come anywhere close to his. And I think I responded to him when he asked me to join. I, I responded humorously, and I don't know if he got the humor. I said, I don't think you guys have health insurance or a good retirement system. One of his uh, white extremist friends that he would picked up in Aloheim City down in Oklahoma and brought back up to the Northwest, they did some home invasions and robberies up in around Spokane, Washington. And then after Farron Lovelace got arrested by the FBI, Chevy talked his little brother Shane into going on a road trip, and they ended up in Frankfort, uh, Ohio. For whatever reason, I don't know. I know that's kind of the area where the Aryan Republic Army had been robbing banks and everything, and I don't know what was going, why he ended up out there, but he had expired plates on the Blue Suburban. And that day, there were two shootouts. Uh, the first one was when the police were trying to stop him and find, you know, check out his license plates and everything, and Shane got out and started shooting at the cops, and they were able to escape. And then there was a second shootout where a patrol car pulls into some alley behind some manufacturing place or something, and Chevy obviously has a AR-15 or some kind of carbine, and that that camera on the dash of the police car, the, the windshield just erupts in bullet holes. And then they fled. They were able to get away from that, and they fled through Wyoming. We we recovered their motor home in Wyoming, had to fly down there. And then they ended up in Utah, outside of St. George, northwest of St. George, in a little area called Gunlock, and working on a guy's ranch. And at that point, Chevy was more or less a serial killer, because he had killed uh, one to two people up in North Idaho. He had he'd got polygamous leanings by hanging out in Loheim City. That Christian identity place down there apparently believes in polygamy. And so he, he would start turning on some of his skinhead buddies because he wanted their girlfriends. And he murdered two of them up there. One body has never been found. But anyway, he when they were down in Utah, he had gotten a fancy for his little brother's wife. And Shane said, "I'm you know, I'm getting my wife and I'm getting out of here. And they drove back up to their uh, his, what er knew as a hometown of Colville, north of Spokane, and turned himself in to get away, because he was scared of his own brother at, by, that, by that point. Mm-hmm. And then the FBI went down and arrested Chevy, and that's when he was put in custody. And then eventually Kirby Keo, the father, turned and rolled for lesser sentence. Shane turned and rolled to testify against Chevy and Danny Lee for a lesser sentence. After the conviction in a capital case, then the jury decides the punishment, not the judge. And so they had a, a, you know, smorgasbord of choices on what to give them, and they gave the death penalty to Danny Lee for the involvement in the murders of the Mueller's, but they only gave Chevy the life in prison. And Chevy was the guy, he was the leader. Yeah. And he was a serial killer.
0: Gundo's career wisdom is invaluable.
1: I would say that Early on in my career at the Sheriff's Department, I I learned some things that would follow me through the rest of my career at the two other agencies I worked at. One of the most important things that I learned, and it probably made me more realistic to what I was facing, was that uh, there's an old term, no good deed goes unpunished. It kind of coincides with how I worked. Uh, When I was in burglary theft, I realized that it was kind of important for me to maybe work with a city police detective who did the same. He was in property crimes at the city. And so Steve Ross and I, we kind of partnered together. And so I found that because he knew all of the, most of the crimes that were going on within the city and me in the county, that there were times when things weren't going to make sense to me in my investigation, but they're going to make sense to him. And so I, I always remembered that, and that served me well through the rest of my career as far as the kind of people that you go to, to work with. And so that really helped. And as far as no good deed goes unpunished, I remember one time we were out working together, Ross and I, so we're playing clothes in a detective car. And at some point, either Steve Ross or I find out from some informant that these two escapees have ended up in this cabin in a very rural area of Missoula County, but like Missoula County, those counties in Montana are gigantic. Anyway, we we know where the cabin's at, so we meet with the sheriff's sergeant the supervisor of the patrol shift on that shift that day, and that was Al Kimry, the guy that I earlier talked about. And so Al looks at us and he goes, well, this sounds good. He says, why don't we just go up there? You guys go in first in plain clothes and I'll sit up around the corner. And uh, he gave us his portable and we went up to the cabin. And to make a long story short, we caught these guys with their pants down. They didn't even know we were there. And we got them in custody and we arrested them. And when we got back to the sheriff's department, course it was Radio Dem that we'd made the arrest up at the scene but when we got back down there the chief of police, the sheriff, the captains of both departments were all pissed off at us because apparently we didn't have the authority to use our own discretion and figure out well let's go up there and check it out and see if there's anything to it and we had no idea they were going to be there and we made it happen and Not only did no one, and if this was done with the boss's permission, everybody would have got some kind of an award. But we were told, you know, don't ever pull anything like this again. And so that served me well throughout my career. Don't expect that people are going to think you're, you know, somebody special, especially even if you do something special.
0: Any attempt to capsulize Steve Gunderson's law enforcement career in a brief interview is a disservice to his legacy. In addition to the domestic terrorism investigations he touched, Gundo spent time working inner-city street gangs, biker gang infiltrations, and every element of gun-and-bomb violent crime imaginable. He is one of those unique figures in Copland who completed a long career admired and respected by his peers and the executives who supervised him. He truly is one of the good guys. In his typical good-natured Gundo style, he wouldn't change a thing.
1: It was a great career. I, I never, when I was in college, I worried about getting a job that I hated to go to. And I never, for 23 years with federal law enforcement, and I had about 10 in local law enforcement, I never got up wishing I didn't have to go to work.
0: Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless, and go be amazing.